Happy New Year and welcome to another one in our series of Financial Wellbeing Podcasts. My name is David Lloyd and I'm here with... Chris Budd. And... Tom Morris, who's now going second behind you. Yeah, I thought right I too. got ahead of you. No, quite right too. Okay. Back to where you should be, mate. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we are an equal triumvirate here of people <laughs> with equal status. Obviously, it's always me that introduces it and starts off. I'd just like to point that out. So uh, here we are. Welcome once again. And what are we going to talk about today, Chris? Well, David, today we are going to have the second part of my chat with Professor Tim Kasser. Obviously, all our listeners will have listened to all our podcasts and will know that in the first interview, he talked about uh, materialism, the theory of values, accumulating stuff, and how the value of accumulating things is the enemy of well-being. And in the second half, we talk a little bit about economics, but we get really into some practical things for people to do. Well, I'm really looking forward to this interview because I, I... Obviously, I like all the interviews that we do, but I was particularly taken with the one that you did with Tim first time round. It's actually had a huge amount of response. I've had loads of people telling me how interesting it was, yeah. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what he's got to say uh, in this second one here. But before we move on to that, we're going to come up with one of our first uh, regular features where we answer some of the typical questions that clients of Ovation Finance ask. So, Tomo, what have you got for us this week? Well, this week, I'm going to introduce... Capital gains tax. Hey, fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think brevity is the essential word. Yeah, in this and I'm going to be very quick with this one. Look, capital gains occur when you sell something for a profit. It might be shares. It could be a investment property you own. But that gain is subject to capital gains tax. And everybody in the UK, if you're a UK tax resident, has this year £11,700 allowance, which means... Any gain that's up to that amount is is tax free, and that's that's the gain, not the investment amount. That's meant that's the gain. The gain. It's an important exactly. point. There. Sorry, so I'm going to stop you there. What's the difference then between the gain and the investment amount? Well, if you invest a hundred thousand, and you sell it for two hundred thousand, you've made a gain of a hundred thousand. So that's the bit that you tax. It's on. the extra bit that you've made the profit, if you like. Exactly. I'm with you. Thank you very much for that clarification. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> as if you know what you're talking <laughs> about. <laughs> Uh, the allowance post-April 2019 is going up to 12000 but not, not a huge difference there. But yeah, there is a tax that needs to be paid, and depending on your own tax rate and the type of asset you're selling, there is a tax to be paid. So that means, Tom, presumably, that if you buy a house, sit in it for 10 years and it goes up in value, you've got to pay capital gains tax. Not if it's your own house. Ah, exemptions. Yes. Uh-huh. So there are exemptions, and for brevity's purpose, I won't go through all of them. <laughs> But your own house that you live in is not subject to capital gain. Uh, so if I've made a gain, what do I do? How do I actually declare it? Uh, that's a good question. Those that do self-assessments, you can do it via that route. So anyone who, who does that annually. But those who don't, you know, maybe don't only pay tax through, through their income via work. You can go online, simply type into Google, pay CGT. And it will come up with a government website and it's actually a system It's called Real-Time Capital Gains Tax Service. And there's a link on there. And a lot of this now is done online as a government gateway and you can do it there and then and pay your capital gains. It's a hypothetical example. My grandfather bought many years ago uh, a painting on his travels for and he paid £500 for it in some sale room back in the 1920s, let's say. And then it's be left it to my dad, and then my dad left it to me. 
and I take that down to a sale room. Down to Antiques Roadshow. Well, exactly, yeah. So there's no record of the original sale, and apocryphally, we understand within the family that, you know, Grandad paid £500 for it. I take it and get it valued and discover that it's worth £2 million, and I go, right, I'm... This is a real story, I No, no, it's not. Sadly, if if only this was so. No, I'm suddenly told it's £2 million, and actually, does that then mean I have to pay capital gain on pretty much all of that? No. No. What happens is that when things are passed down via death, I'm assuming in this scenario... I guess it would be, yeah. Um, the capital gain is not relevant. It's kind of wiped. OK. And but would there be an inheritance tax on that? There could be. And right. that's we were definitely not going to get into that right now. <laughs> uh, but on, on death, it just... The value gets... All the, and reset. Just gets it. reset. So oh, okay. say... It was then worth so a it's when, and a half. it's when you came into yeah. it. That's what matters, right? How much was it worth when you got it, and then it only actually happens when you sell it because you haven't made like any investment. You haven't made any gain until you've sold the thing. Mm-hmm. So people in the stock market, got money in the stock market, say I've made this amount or I've lost that amount. You haven't made or lost anything until you actually sell it. So hold on to the painting, enjoy it, get well-being from it, and uh, pay no tax. Yeah, the only sad thing about that is there is no painting. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, quickly finish on this one. There are deadlines to pay these gains and report them, and it's the 31st of December after the tax year in which the, the gain occurred. So you've got yourself a bit of time to get it all sorted. Well, thank heavens I have a very good financial advisor who sorts all that out for me. Who's that, David? Very good company. Ovation Finance for all your financial <laughs> advice needs. Um, you don't believe in advertising. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Now, let's move on to what I think is widely acknowledged to be the favourite bit of the podcast. It's the reason that people tune in episode by episode, and it's the Tight Ass Tomo tips. Remember, um, there's a hashtag on Twitter, hashtag Tight Ass Tomo. Uh, If you've got any brilliant ideas for money saving, then please do let us have them. Chris, I understand that you've got one for us today. I do, um, although it's not very light-hearted, I'm afraid. But it's really, really important. It's about stopping yourself potentially from being burgled. So I want to share with everybody something that happened to us recently. Um, it's uh, something called the Nottingham Knockers. Mrs B recently answered the door to someone saying who said that he was recently uh, out from prison and was trying to raise a little bit of money. And she gave him some because she felt sorry for him. He had a little card that said I'm rehabilitating or something like that. So it all looked very official. Now, it's important to note probation services do not run rehabilitation schemes which get ex-prisoners to go out and knock on doors. I mean, that would be crackers, wouldn't it, to do that as a rehabilitation scheme. The same goes for someone claiming that they're deaf or dumb. Okay, If you get people knocking on your door like that, there's a very good chance they're actually gangs who are dropped off in transit vans in a group and work the area. They're known as the Nottingham Knockers because that's where this first started. And what they're actually doing potentially is gathering information about your house and what you might have in it. So to give one example, the cost of their products, if they're selling a product, will usually be something like a tenner, a round figure. And if the tenner smells musty, then this suggests that an elderly person who's got a big stash somewhere under a mattress... So they, there's a lot of other little little things that they pick up, like if you um, notice brand new, for example, that, that tells them information. They obviously can look past you into the house. Also, whether you are there during the day as well. So if your house passes that test, then it might go on to a list which is sold to various people, such as dodgy builders and burglars. Basically, simple rule, never buy anything from anyone who cold calls, whether it's by your door or by telephone. 
Thanks for that, Chris. And, it, and interesting, that is, uh, I mean, I've had these people calling on me many years ago, but now I, I now have a rule that I never, I will always answer, if I'm in, obviously, can't if I'm not. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, a good rule. I like that. And I'm always courteous. Whoever it is, whatever they're selling, they'll start their spiel and I just go, can I stop you there? Thanks very much for calling round and giving me some of your time. But as a general rule, I do not buy anything from people who call at the door and then I close the door. Yeah, and good. that's my standard response. There's no need to be rude about it. No. There's no need, you know. There's no need to get all get off my land. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, light and firm. Never, ever, ever buy from somebody on the telephone or at the door. Mm. Yeah, and so you save yourself an awful lot of money that way. Yeah. Good, good financial well-being tip. Actually. Yes, yes. Thanks for that, Chris. Anyway, enough of what we think about these things. Let's come now to the master. Tomo, come on, what have you got for us? Well, I guess this one's possibly a little late because this would have been useful for people buying Christmas presents, possibly. <laughs> Remember this for next year, guys. <laughs> great start, love but, it. But really good for <laughs> Valentines and birthdays and anniversaries. Um, now, I was made aware of a website called fivestardays.com and it's basically going out and doing things in really nice places but at cut price deals so yeah it's that's it it's experiences really, experiences yeah. which is which is right which in is, our center you know mm-hmm. in our sweet spot have experiences and don't buy stuff um i've just got a question for you though tomo see i think there's actually a more subtle tight ass tomo tip here which is that if you are on a regular and highly popular podcast why don't you get some free experiences from a website that wants advertising? <laughs> if you had a backhander here, <laughs> how could I possibly say? I, I uh, Mr. Well, Taxman, nothing's going on here. Yeah, well, if, if if there are backhanders going, I'd just like to say fivestardays.com. It sounds like an absolutely brilliant. I think they're wonderful. Fivestardays.com are oh, strongly recommended. But I think what probably fivestardays.com need is probably some people to actually try out some fivestardays.com experiences. What was the name of that website again? Fivestardays.com, I think. <laughs> so that we can all perhaps um, be able to talk with some knowledge about the fantastic opportunities that fivestardays.com offers the general public. Yeah, I must say at this point, I am not being paid by fivestardays.com. <laughs> I just came across it. It does look as though it's got some really, really good deals for experiences. And like you said, that's what we're all about. So. Right, enough of all of that. Now let's come on to the main event, which is the second part of the interview that you did uh, with Professor Tim Kasser. Uh, which episode was that, Tomo? It was episode 42. Oh, you are. You've got all the knowledge, haven't you? That's all why he's called it. producer, Tomo. Well, exactly. exactly. Uh, as we said earlier, there was a lot of really good stuff in that, intrinsic and extrinsic values, I seem to remember. That's it, That's a yeah. key part of that. Uh, so what about today's interview, Chris? What can you tell us about it before we actually hear it? So Professor Kasser is uh, a professor at Knox University in America, and he's got this book called Hypercapitalism, which um, a comic or graphic novel. It's a really interesting book. And he's been doing research for years and years and years about materialism. And in particular, what his research has shown is how materialism actually reduces well-being. Wow, because there's been a lot in the press recently about uh, climate change and the plastic in our oceans. It seems to me that if we consumed less stuff, not only would we help save the planet, but we'd be happier too and have better well-being. Exactly, exactly. And if we can add to that the fact that we get more well-being from experiences than any stuff, as we've just touched on. So 
what I do with this next conversation with Professor Cass is we go on to look at what we can actually do about this. Um, we talk a little bit about some more of the theory, but then we get into some practical ideas for how we can increase our financial well-being and, as it happens, help save the planet at the same time. So let's have a listen to my chat with Professor Tim Casser. Tim, um, thanks for joining us again. Get the second part of our conversation um, based upon your book, Hypercapitalism. And I'd like to talk this time about the kind of macro aspect of your book. I would like at the end, if we can, as your book does, to come into some of the things that we can do ourselves to change uh, how we behave and maybe how the world works a little bit. So we will come back to that. But perhaps first you could just explain what you mean by the expression hypercapitalism. Well, hypercapitalism is a term that others have used too, and the idea is to distinguish it from sort of regular capitalism. So, you know, regular capitalism as it developed um, in the 17, 18, and 1900s was a particular economic system that involved, you know, trade, that involved the pursuit of self-interest, that involved competition. So, all these sort of basic things that come from Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. What starts to happen around the 1940s and 50s in particular is a lot of people say that you, you see a real ramping up of capitalism at this point and that it kind of has become a different animal. Um, it's become an extreme version of itself. So, so capitalism was always very concerned with materialistic um, values and profit and issues like that. But um, what happened in the 50s and 60s and then again in the United States and the UK in the 80s in particular with Reagan and Thatcher is that you see a massive move towards deregulation, towards globalization, towards privatization. You see a, a ramping up of consumerism and advertising like really hadn't been around before. You see a decreasing set of power that the worker has compared to what the corporation has. And essentially what you see is, from our perspective, the, the triumph of materialistic values for profit and economic growth and consumption over other sorts of values like caring about the environment and well-being and such like that. So, so from our perspective, hypercapitalism is sort of next generation capitalism or capitalism on steroids or capitalism taken to a place where the, the values have gotten even more out of whack than they were back in the 1900s. And presumably, uh, you talked last time about intrinsic and extrinsic values, um, mm -hmm. extrinsic not being good for our well-being and, and being about uh, external reward, if you like, uh, whereas intrinsic is all about uh, internal, etc. So presumably hypercapitalism is bad for the intrinsic values. That's correct. So again, just to remind listeners, what we found and what others have found about how the human value system is organized, you know, these extrinsic values for money, image, and status tend to stand in conflict with intrinsic values for personal growth and for connection to other people and caring about the environment. There's a dynamic tension there. And the logic of capitalism and the logic of hypercapitalism are such that it needs people to focus on those materialistic values. It needs people to believe that what's important is to work hard, make as much money as possible, spend as much money as possible, spend even more than you actually have, okay? Because that's what keeps the wheels of hypercapitalism turning, especially in a nation like the UK or the US, where so much of it depends on consumer spending. The, the system demands um, high levels of consumption, high levels of production. 
um, and even high levels of debt, I would argue. Now, the more that people focus on materialistic values, we know from the research, the less they tend to focus on intrinsic values. And what the, there are at least two studies that I'm aware of that have quantitatively empirically tested this idea that hypercapitalism is associated with more materialistic values, but also less intrinsic values. What these studies do is they look cross-culturally, they look at the values of different countries, but then they use uh, indices which have been developed by economists to measure how sort of free market, deregulated, hypercapitalist a nation is versus how more sort of coordinated, what's called strategic, regulated, caring about workers, et cetera, the nation is. And what the research shows is that the more that a nation focuses on those or has an economy which is organized around deregulation, privatization, the free market, um, the more its citizens value money image status and the less its citizens value those intrinsic values. Um, so those intrinsic values do tend to go down in more hyper-capitalist nations, yes. And presumably then those nations that are more focused on extrinsic values are less happy? Well, when you t again, the research that I've just talked about has been done mostly, you know, in order to keep wealth uh, constant, it's been done mostly in Western European, North America, Australia, etc. There's definitely research that shows that this negatively impacts children's well-being. So in a study I published in 2011, we associated values with a, a measure of children's well-being that UNICEF had put out. And we found that the more that nations are focused on those extrinsic values than the intrinsic values, the lower the children's well-being was in those nations. It's also the case that nations like the U.S. and the U.K., which tend to be very hyper-capitalist, by the way, that those nations are lower in overall measures of well-being than one would predict. You know, generally speaking, the, the nations that have the highest level of well-being are the Scandinavian nations. And these are nations which definitely, as capitalist nations go, are not hyper-capitalist, okay? They have a lot more rules that um, tone down capitalism, that build up the power of the worker, that care about the environment, et cetera. And those tend to be the happiest nations um, among Europe, for sure, consistently across study after study. This is a complicated area, Tim, because anyone listening to this who's English will know that we English are happy being miserable. <laughs> <laughs> it's the weather, right? Yeah, exactly. We like drizzle. There's um, a table in your book which talks about the S-score, which is a shorthand for how hyper-capitalist the country is. And at yeah. one end of the spectrum, we have America as the most hyper-capitalist country on this table. And then at the other end of the spectrum, interestingly, we have Austrian Germany. Yeah. Now, Germany is kind of the economic powerhouse of Europe, isn't it? Um, well, it's certainly come a long ways, I think. Uh, but what it shows is that you can have a successful economy without necessarily sacrificing other sorts of important values. So, you know, one of the things that I think I'm continually amazed about, and this is partly being in America, it's very difficult to talk about capitalism in America. And it was it was almost impossible before um, the 2008 financial crisis, you know, I mean, I, I found it very difficult to 
get people to allow me to say the C word in America because the idea was, well, we have the best system. It is the best system. How could you even question it? If you question it, you must be a communist. And I think that has really made things much more extreme in the United States than um, in other nations and led us down this path of hypercapitalism. And, and again, it's successful. There's no doubt that, you know, nations which uh, are deregulating and privatizing do have successful economies. But that's not to say that there aren't other successful paths, too. There are other ways to organize an economy that give, um, you know, the purpose of an economy is to create and distribute the goods and services people need. That's what an economy is. Okay, there are many ways to do that, potentially. And I think what Germany, Austria, the Scandinavian nations have done have been to find a way to meet people's material needs and sacrifice less those intrinsic values than uh, nations like the U.S. and the U.K. do. I think one particularly interesting um, part about the Germany and uh, listeners will want to know where the UK is on this table and, and they'll be delighted to know we're near the top of the charts we're, yeah, we're up there with America <laughs> well pretty much what just real quick on that it's it's some call hyper capitalism anglo capitalism actually okay because really when you look the top the top scores on these measures are the US Canada the UK Australia New Zealand okay those are the most hyper capitalist nations by most measures and of course they're they're all uh, anglo nations one subject close to my heart is the idea of employee ownership of companies sure and in the UK the mergers and acquisitions industry ie the corporate finance guys accountants who are advising consulting telling people to sell their businesses to somebody else uh, it's a huge industry in mm. Germany it barely exists mm. because in Germany things like the German pencil industry they, those companies have been around for hundreds of years they're family-owned businesses and they will carry on and the idea of value of the business and the idea of selling the business it just doesn't really happen that much in Germany whereas here it's the norm and yet, yeah. you know, they're at the bottom of the hypercapitalist league table. Well, I think that there we get at one of the issues about private ownership. You know, I, I think that one of the real shifts that happens towards hypercapitalism historically, and I want to emphasize that I'm neither an economist nor a historian, okay? But my understanding of it is that what you have here is the emergence of the for-profit publicly traded corporation. Now, of course, we've had those for a long time, you know, at least in America since the 1800s, um, but probably earlier. Now, when you have a for-profit publicly traded corporation, in the United States at least, the way in which you get incorporated, you you must maximize shareholder value. Okay, that is legally what you must do. That's legally what the CEO has to do. That's legally what the board has to make sure the CEO does. Now, there what you have is obviously, from my my perspective as a value theorist, you have the privileging of materialistic values, which is going to suppress those intrinsic values. Now, if you have a privately held co company, however, you are under no such obligation to always be attempting to maximize shareholder value because it's just your company. And if you decide that you're going to put up solar panels throughout the whole company and you know you're going to lose some money or you're going to um, make sure that workers are paid a living wage, even though that's going to cost your bottom line, but you think it's the right thing to do, you're perfectly justified in doing that because it's your company. You don't have to order to, or answer to a board or to the shareholders. So I think that's one of the fundamental 
issues which has driven hypercapitalism to become so hyper is the set of laws that really has given immense power to the you know public for-profit um, corporation and has not done enough to help private corporations, has not done enough to help um, worker-owned corporations, etc., which want to operate under a different value system. Okay, thank you. I'm curious what you think of my answer. <laughs> well, I, I I would agree with you, generally speaking, but uh, as a student of economics, you know, the theory of capitalism of the free market is lovely you know adam smith's invitable hand all that kind of stuff the profit motive it's great on paper the problem is rather like socialism and communism and all the other economic models they don't actually work in practice yeah well it's like what king said uh what is it under communism man takes advantage of man under capitalism it's just the opposite you know and <laughs> And <laughs> That's a great I didn't get the quote exactly right, but it's something it's something like that. Well, yeah. if you got it slightly wrong, it's now your quote. <laughs> <laughs> so let's look at what people can do differently. There's a couple of things in your book, Hypercapitalism, which um, we actually covered on the podcast before. So we had a lady called Michelle McGar who did a book called No Spend Year, where she literally mm -hmm. spent a year spending no money other than what was necessary to keep her alive. Absolutely fascinating. So some of your ideas we, we have covered before, but I really like the sharing economy idea. Mm -hmm. And you give a number of examples of the sharing economy. And, and when I first saw the word, I turned the page, I saw the word libraries. I thought, yeah, 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 I know what that means. But then you went on that it's not just books. Right. Can you talk us yeah. through that? Yeah, sure. So there are tool libraries, there are seed libraries, there are, well, my favorite is toy libraries, to be honest. I think toy libraries are really brilliant. And they work just like your regular library. And I would note that many of them are actually um, in the same building as book libraries, uh, in the United States at least. So the idea is, so I don't know if you have kids, but when my kids were little, you know, they went through books like crazy because the books were short, you know, and they wanted to read them over and over and over again, and then they were done. And so if I had had to buy all of the books that my kids read, there would have been a lot of my income, okay? So instead, I went to the library. Well, the same works for toys, right? There's no reason that we uh, can't share toys in the same way that we share books. Similar with regard to tools, you know, the research shows in America, at least, you know, like the average hand drill, you know, is used for something like six minutes a year, okay? It's it's That's much, much more. my hand drill is used for, Tim, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, it's actually substantially less than mine is, but I also live on 10 acres, and so we've always got something to do with the drill. Um, in any case, you know, the, the point is, is that for things like drills or ladders or even lawnmowers, that sharing these um, makes a lot more financial sense. It also um, makes a lot more ecological sense in terms of the costs of production. So there's there's a variety of different ways and other kinds of things we can share. Uh, there are clothes sharing libraries for especially for things like prom dresses, where especially poor kids, poor girls who can't really afford to shell out $300 for a prom dress, they're just going to wear once. There are some libraries that have a prom dress library where the girls, they go, they check out the prom dress, they get it fitted, and then they return it two days later, you know. So these kinds of, of opportunities for sharing are ones that can very much be implemented at local levels. And in fact, most of them are local. You know, it's some some librarian or some group of people in a town or village decide, hey, why don't we open one of these and they get it together. They're, I think, really a wonderful way forward. Yeah. yeah. The direction of travel seems to be the opposite, though. I was yep. just looking today at a tweet because 
there's a lovely square in the middle of uh, London called Soho Square, a little bit of grass in the middle of London, and traditionally all the office workers go out there and they sit and they uh, grab a little bit of grass, put a rug out, have the lunch. But a company has, I don't know with whose authority, but they have roped it round, or at least some of it, if not all of it round, called it the VIP area, and you now have to book and pay. <laughs> Wow. And yeah. uh, it's just absolutely hideous to me, that concept. You know, in the UK, we're closing most of our book libraries. The government are taking all the funding away from them. Right. Um, and if you want to go and do a kind of clothes swap, it's a charity shop. Mm -hmm. So um, that which, which has been a massive <laughs> growth industry in many ways over the last 20 years in the UK. So I think the I'd, I'd love the idea of a tool swap. But I wonder that there's too much vested interest from business who can make money out of this exchange. Well, and the government that passes the laws that regulate these things that are lobbied by those governments. So, for example, in, with regard to seed libraries, there was a seed library and I think it was North Carolina that was closed down by the government as being illegal. Well, why? Because companies that sell seeds don't want you to use a seed library because that cuts into their profit. The same is true with tools. The same is true with toys, et cetera. And so it's very difficult. You know, there's, there's a lot of vested interest among business and among the government. And, and here we go back to privatization. The, the goal is for everybody to drive their own car rather than to have a really good public transportation system. That's clearly the goal in the United States. And you can see it play out over and over again um, in the history of the United States. You can see with, with what's happening with, with our train system, et cetera. They, they, what's, what's good for the economy, what's good for companies is not to have people share, but instead to have people consume, to buy each their own car, each their own drill, each their own prom dress. Um, because that's the logic of the system. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope your book goes some way to reversing that and make make awareness of this is the game that's being played and that we are we are part of. Uh, really appreciate your time, Tim. Thanks ever so much for joining me. I appreciate you having me on the show. Absolutely fascinating stuff there from Tim Cassidy. Now I have to say, and I mentioned this in the introduction, that we've had lots of people, lots of interviews on here. I, I do genuinely enjoy them all, but. There's something about Tim Casser's message that has really, really hit home to me. And I really got from that interview this whole notion that, I mean, we need to accept that we, you know, we live in a capitalist society. Whether we like it or not, that's the way the world works. And there are many, many benefits that come from the way in which that financial system is organised. But I think the way he talks about the, the, the logical implausibility of pursuing capitalism to its ultimate goal, which is just creating a situation where actually all you are doing is inventing stuff to be consumed so that we can consume more stuff and then invent more stuff, clearly is presenting huge problems for the world. And I've, I've never heard an economist address that central issue in as clear and concise a way as he does. Yeah, really interesting guy, isn't he? I um. I may have mentioned on this podcast before, I'm a trustee of an organisation called Happy City. Please go and look them up, people. Uh, and their central message is that we're measuring the wrong things in society. So if we measure uh, GDP, you know, if, if you ever hear, what really, do you know what really bugs me? I'm going to get one out here, OK? Let me get this off my chest. If it snows and on the six o'clock news it says one billion was wiped off the value of the economy today because nobody could go to work. No, we were having fun with our kids in the snow. 
So measuring GDP is measuring the wrong thing. Mm. Uh, we cannot have infinite growth because the planet is limited in its resources. If you have more waste, that means waste management companies do well, make profit, GDP goes up. We're measuring the wrong things. And I was very taken with his analysis or his mentioning of the Scandinavian countries. Yeah. I, was in, I was in Norway a few years ago and I was... Um, in Stavanger, which is an, an oil town, and I did like an open-top bus tour of Stavanger. And part of that, they had a commentary about about the town and about Norway, and they were talking actually about the Norwegian welfare system and the rights and privileges that you get. If you're made unemployed in Norway, and people will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're basically guaranteed the salary that you were earning when you became unemployed. You're guaranteed it for a year. There's all sorts of other benefits. Now, they're paying income tax, at 50% in Norway. But actually, the money that they've got, and the money that they've got, particularly from North Sea oil and gas, they've invested mm. in a national fund that mm. they've squirreled away, not just for the next year or the next decade, but for the next 200 years. They've guaranteed that that money is there. And so there's a sense of a nation that has benefited from wealth creation, but is actually giving it back out mm. to the people in a way they are still a very highly functioning society economically, or I understand that they are anyway, but actually the people there have enormous well-being because they don't feel that they're working their butts off just in order to create wealth for other people. They actually feel that they're benefiting from it too. And I think that's what Tim Kasser mentions very succinctly in his uh, interview there. Yeah, I, th I think there's a balance to be struck. No, I certainly don't. Uh, prescribed to the idea that wealth creators should be vilified. No. Far from it. No, I'm not suggesting far, that. Far from no. it. And, and I think there is a balance to be had. Capitalism has created yeah. all the wonderful things that we have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just it's got a bit out of control. Yeah. Uh, what I also really liked was the idea of these libraries. Um, as a person for whom uh, the concept of DIY brings me out in a rash, um, <laughs> my brother comes over to change the light bulb in our house. Uh, the idea of owning a drill. I own a drill. I mean, absolutely preposterous that I own a drill. <laughs> um, there should be, a, we should have a library where we share this stuff. I think it's, um, George Ferguson has talked about the sharing economy on an earlier podcast mm. as well. I really like that concept. Uh, and the idea of a toy bank, for example, you know, uh, in a way, charity shops fulfill this function for me mm. um, because if I've stopped using stuff, I take it to a charity shop and they can sell it on. But what about it, David? Should we set something up in Backwell? Should we set up a, a, a tool library? Well, I think that would be a very good idea because we we cannot surely continue. There's been a lot of stuff in the news uh, just late last year with when David Attenborough came out, was talking about plastics in the oceans. We surely cannot carry on like this, just producing things that are there to be consumed and then chucking them away when we don't need them anymore. Uh, Do you know, if you, um, if you imagine that at the beginning of each year, the world has to produce a certain number of amount of resources that we then consume, okay? Um, at some point during the year, it has, uh, we've, we've taken up as much as we need, and then we are digging in further than the, what it can reproduce, mm. okay? If you imagine that as a 12-month period, it's August at the moment, is by August each year, we have taken out more than the planet can reproduce. So we're actually eating in to stuff that can never be, never come back again. You're absolutely right. We have to do something about this. And sharing seems to be a really good way. But don't let us forget, this podcast is about money and happiness. Mm -hmm. And Tim Kasser's point is the accumulation of, of wealth, the accumulation of material goods is a value which is opposite to the value of well-being and happiness. 
and it brings us right back to the essential principles of why you wrote the Financial Wellbeing book and really what this podcast has been about in all the episodes that we do and continue to do, which is sometimes we might just need to have a slightly different look at the way in which we um, appreciate our money. And it comes from know thyself, work out what you want from life, spend your money on that. And every single time I've been through that process with somebody, when through ovation or what have you, they've realised that the things that make them happy isn't the accumulation of stuff. So Tim Cass's book is Hypercapitalism, his graphic novel. And was there another one as well? or is that? He's done a few, yeah. Just Google his name or we'll put his name into Amazon um, and all his books will come up. But, but Hypercapitalism is a really good read. He gets a little bit polemic at times, maybe mm. for some people's tastes. Um, but it's only just almost taste. But the underlying message is, is really cool. And the, the end important. section, which is all practical about things you can do, is absolutely brilliant. Great. Well... I hope you've enjoyed that at home as much as we have. It's obviously uh, stimulated a good debate here as well. So join us next time for another one of our fascinating series of financial wellbeing podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. Thank you.